Hello, everyone, and welcome to this live episode of To The Moon, Allison, where we talk about the top and trending works in speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and romance. I'm your host, author Allison Martine Hubbard, author of the contemporary romance series, The Bourbon Books, and works of speculative fiction. I am so excited to be joined today by not just an author, but a poet and professor and friend, Chella Corrington. Welcome, Chella. Oh, thank you, Allison. I've been looking forward to this. I've been excited because Chella and I have spoken, but it's been a while since we've gotten to see each other face to face and actually do voice versus just, hey, what's going on with the keyboard? It's not quite the same. And Chella, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself before we also talk about Adele and Tom, Portrait of a Marriage. And I'm holding it up here. It's kind of shiny. So I'm hoping people can see it. I posted a picture of it on my Instagram because it's it's so glossy that people are probably like, what are you looking at? Stop blinding me with light. (laughs) So Chella, tell us a little bit about this book and about your career. Like I said, you are an author, you're a poet. And this book is unlike a lot of other books because of the style. And I've always called it a flash fiction novella. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about the inspiration for that and how it comes from your other work. Okay, great. Well, first, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm in Santa Barbara, California. I've lived here for 20 years, migrated from the South. I was raised in the Southern Appalachian area. Um, I've been an academic, taught English, did a lot of academic writing. But then when I moved to California, I kind of returned to a more creative writing that I'd done too and actually had studied when I was in graduate school. I love that. And I love, I love that California brings that out of you. It does. You know, you know those myths about in all the novels about moving west and how it just changes and open things up. I mean that's really the way that I felt because I'm God, I'm you know, I'm Two thousand miles from my source, I could reinvent myself in any way I wanted to, almost. And I, we love it here, actually. Um, so it, let me talk. I will talk. Speak to Adele and Tom. I will hold it up for people again. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, it is. Well, let me start with the auto fiction type of work. It is. And autofiction is biography plus fiction. Ben Lerner, if you're familiar with that author, or Rachel Cusk, they take their own life stories and then add a bit of fiction, but use their names, the places, the events. And that's kind of what a tale in time is. It's moderately based on the life of me and my husband, my husband and me, uh, we're both writers. He is an economist by training. I'm an English teacher by training, English professor. Um, and I was kind of inspired to write this because it's about everyday life. There are no huge issues. No one. There's no murder. <laughs> Yeah, there's no murder. No one goes kidnapping. It's just, you know, getting up and meeting a new day and playing with your cat and looking for a dog. And 
Of course, there's tension. The where the tension is between Tom and Adele. Adele doesn't have the confidence as a writer that Tom does. But at the same time, she introduced Tom to writing. So there's just that kind of conflict and a bit of tension there. Um, well, and I love your dedication because it says dedicated to my t- my husband, Ted, who's a lot nicer than Tom. And right. having read this, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that Ted is necessarily based on Tom or that Tom is a villain per se, because he's not. It's it's not so black and white because that's how humans really are. And I think when you have that auto fiction aspect, you're kind of challenged to take a real person and fictionalize them without losing that essence. So I'm assuming yeah. Ted, Ted's read this, yes? <laughs> Um, so (laughs) are influenced by Virginia Woolf and she had written a piece in own fiction and when she said that our everyday lives are the stuff of um, fiction of course with Mrs. Dalloway that's exactly what's going on except you do have a suicide and you do have death and that, but still, it's the stuff of everyday life. So I thought, I want to write something based loosely on my life and Ted's life, largely Adele's story. I mean, it's a whole, the issues that Adele raises about finding herself, how, how does she deal with being a female how does she deal with being a woman who was never able to have children and wanted children? How does she handle the issue of writing and this kind of growing diffidence about writing? Um, and one way, yes, it's flash fiction. A lot of flash fiction today is kind of quirky. That's kind of the trend and Mine is pretty uh, traditionally realistic, but it, I don't, I don't know. It's like another way of imagining is like vignettes, exactly. a series of vignettes. It's a, it's a series of vignettes and it's very poetic. So you were saying earlier, some of them are more, some of the flash fiction we've seen has been more quirky or has relies on a twist or some kind of conceit to make it worth this shorter thing versus here it's more of like these vignettes that you read in series and they each stand alone but they add up to this narrative that you wouldn't get if you just read any single one but together they're this tapestry rather than a traditional novel where you have just here's a here's your narrative and you start at the beginning and you end with the end and here you kind of more float through it I would say right. getting different samples at different times and different struggles from you mentioned the inability to have children. There's also illness on both parts, I believe. Right. And right. and how that influences, especially as, as a couple trying to stand by each other while also dealing with physical struggles. I don't know how much of that was internalized and how much of that was fictionalized for you. I know personally, I feel like I've been sick since last fall. So I'm like, oh, that part I really resonate with right now. You can hear it in my voice as yeah. I drink more tea. Gosh, I love to hear you talk about my work, Allison. I think you can articulate it better than I can. But I think that's true. Often the observer can see what maybe the 
riders too close to see. Well, and also for you, I wonder how much of it when you're writing and then you're fictionalizing these characters that are loosely based on you and your husband, that line blurs like, well, that occurred, didn't it? Well, that was my perspective. And then you have both your perspective, the truth, and then this fictionalized version. And all three of them probably have this amazing interplay that I would wonder if people who maybe had seen some of these scenes in real life and then read it go, ooh, that's a different perspective on what I saw. But most of these scenes are very private. I mean, I remember there's one in a coffee shop, but most of them are in quiet moments in the home. And I, I really appreciated that because I feel like that's the unsung part of life that so many things in novels are everything's action and everything's go, go, go. And that becomes unrelatable for people who are like, I'm living a quiet life where there are no kidnappings, murders. No one's going, like you said, no one's going off to war. It is not the end of the world. I mean, sometimes it is the pandemic, but this right. isn't quiet most of the time in terms of those moments where you're really soaking in what your everyday life is like. Why did you choose to go that way instead of going with a bigger, flashier glimpse of your life? Because I'm sure you've had bigger, flashier moments in your life. You, you've lived a life where you're a professor and you're doing all these things. Why did you focus on the quiet? Well, you know, really, truthfully, I think that I was triggered by Virginia Woolf, and I think it became then a challenge for me. How can I take the quiet? How can I take the private and make it readable and appealing and relatable? I think it. the feedback that I have gotten from readers is that it is relatable. Absolutely. You know, it it's that part that they can really connect with. And the novel I'm working on now, again, heavily influenced by Wolf, but more by Ian McKeon that did Saturday, um, is a quiet, compressed kind of narrative. It takes place largely over a weekend, and it's, and this is not really giving this, well, <laughs> giving the story away. We some spoilers. It's your it's your story. If you want to spoil some, that's fair. You know, it it takes place when the protagonist, the moment, the, it's first person, and Janet Hall is telling the story, and it takes place when her ex husband, lifetime lover, they married. She started dating him at fifteen. When he dies. So it's the weekend uh, or a week, but it's largely focused on the weekend of his funeral, his visiting hours, his funeral, and the wake and what happens thereafter. But well, again, it's a pretty quiet story. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's death. And actually... <laughs> I love how you say it's death, but it's quiet. And I personally, I love a compressed narrative because a lot of times you really have to be in each scene that way rather than sometimes when you have a more, I don't want to say epic scope that you don't get those scenes. But I think sometimes when you do have this focus, the slice of time when the emotions are just so raw and intense, you get those really meaningful scenes that gives you the glimpse of the larger life without having to be dragged through the whole thing. You get kind of like a right. menu almost. And um, yeah, there's just something that I really like, but it's a much more traditional 
narrative and it does have arcs and it does, you know, have uh, conflict action resolution in a way that Adele and Tom, I like to think of it, but of course we always like to put ourselves in <laughs> the best light, don't we? But John Gardner, who wrote The Art of Fiction, mm-hmm. that he has a, a section in there where he talks about pointillism in terms of literary pointillism. It's just like in art, if you stand back and if you stand up close, you see all these little points like Sunday in the park. Exactly. The further back you get, you begin to get the image of the painting. Yeah. And I like to think of of Adele and Tom like that. You're in each uh, moment um, are selecting moments, of course, of their lives. But then when you finish and think about it as a whole, there is an arc. There is uh, uh, a kind of undercurrent exactly. of connective tissue. Well, and it's beautiful because, like I said earlier, because it doesn't rely on the conceit of like a little twist in each one. These these aren't gotcha stories. These are these beautiful. Right. They, they read very poetically. And if you had them written out like poetry, people would probably just say, oh, this it's a book of poems. But usually a book of poems doesn't add up to a narrative. I mean, sometimes right. they do. It depends on the collection. But I was just turning the pages and just showing myself, or I don't know if I can show it to the camera very clearly, but you have a chapter that's literally only like two chapters, or excuse me, two paragraphs long. And each one is just its own little section. And the next one may not relate to that one because they aren't ordered in a chronological way. Was there any specific way when you wrote these that you decided to order them or was it just, this is the order they came in. So I'm going to present it as it was kind of stream of consciousness, or was that something that you sat down and edited to have the most, I don't want to say cohesive impact or just the most narrative impact. What was the choice like that about? Well, the process was, that I took all of the pages and spread them out on the floor. I love it. <laughs> and I get, but the first step before that, I went through each one and at the top, I would sort of put down uh, two or three subjects that I thought mm-hmm. that it dealt with. And then I spread it out on the floor and used those subject lines as kind of motivation for putting them together. So I got my order and then my best editor and whatever I write is Ted, Tom, Ted. <laughs> Ted, Tom, so, whatever his name is. <laughs> and I gave him, and I always do this. I said, what do you think about this order? And he made uh, some very strong editorial suggestions about shifting the order, and I took most of them and wound up with Adele and Tom. Well, I I thought it flowed beautifully, and I just know my own experience, I've never written flash fiction and published it. Most of my flash fiction 
does not work out so well. And it usually has relied on those conceits, but I've done that before as part of writing exercises and strengthening mm -hmm. my writing overall. Um, but one of the novels that I had that it, it died in submission and maybe it will end up being released at some point in the future, but it had these interstitial sections and figuring out where they went because they were nonlinear was so difficult because having to figure out where they don't disrupt the narrative, but add to the narrative and give this little extra insight. Now that was working with an actual narrative narrative with these slices in whereas here you have nothing you're slicing with it's just all pieces and you literally could have just shuffled them but it wouldn't, yeah. have, been, it wouldn't have had the same impact the way this does and so I just I was curious about that because I've never read something like this and I'm sure when anthology editors put together work they decide what order things come in probably whichever authors have the biggest names they put those near the end so you've got to read to get to them but yeah, when it's all yeah. one, when it's all one, it's got to be thematic and you've got to look at these things from the reader's point of view. But it's it's interesting in figuring out how did you do it? And I love that you just had Ted slash Tom be the one to, to do it. And you're like, oh, listen to some of it, especially because, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that you're both writers and the fact that there is that tension there and him coming from an economy background. I can't imagine economy and English lit probably not writing about the same things most of the time. Well, you know, an interesting thing, and I never took an economics course in college. Um, <laughs> I took one in high school because it was required. You know, but asking, talking with Ted about what what is the connection here? And he said, well, the, writing fiction, writing, developing characters, not a lot different from, he was uh, microeconomics, it, looking at why people make certain decisions economically. You know, what's what's the inciting incident? What is their choice? He said it's all about choices and setting it up. So when he when he tells me about it, it tends to make sense. But we do have a very different approach. I think that, you know, we talk about poetry. The great thing I think about poetry and shorter works, like you said, it's a good exercise. It helps you hone your own language. And I think that's the way I came, I guess that's the way we all come to writing, is that you love language and you want to see what the language can do. And um, I think poetry, particularly, is a way of just making you more agile and adept with language, whether you ever publish a poem. I just think it's a good exercise, as you say. Well, and I introduced you as, as a poet and your poetry has appeared in so many journals and all these different places. You have chapbooks out and I've gotten to read some of it, certainly not all of it, but you come from all these different backgrounds, including your own background, but also you've woven in Greek mythology. I love how you can just incorporate these different things. And I, I loved reading the very feminist take on a lot of these. So how did you incorporate a lot of the Greek mythology and the feminist ideas into your poetry? Where's the inspiration for that? Oh, gosh. Well, I've always liked myth and maybe about four or five summers ago, I thought, I'm going to write a poem a day. This was in August. Oh, I love and that. I, I, but I thought, I, I want an overarching theme because 
so much of my poetry, I mean, I think it's my eclectic taste and one reason I like to write poetry and nonfiction and fiction. I'm not someone that just totally hones in on a topic. So or, or stand with the genre. I mean, I like the movement, the challenge. Um, but one August, I thought I, I need a theme. And I thought, all right, I think I'll write. I'll try to reclaim some of the damaged uh, Greek mythic <laughs> goddesses and park goddesses. And so I just reread the myths and then tried to imagine how they would see it, what they would say given given a voice, how they would interpret this rather than how it was interpreted for them. I love that. I also love that you came in it with a limited time period, which would keep you focused, this specific thing of doing one a day in August, and then also this theme rather than just what am I going to write each day and just stare at either. Do you usually write yours longhand first? Oh, uh, yeah, it sort of varies. Often I'll write it, part of it in longhand, but I, part of it I'll write on the iPad in the band. Mm -hmm. I find the best, best time, particularly for poetry, is when I wake up in the morning, I get a glass of water, a cup of coffee, and my iPad and stay in bed and just I love it. write for an hour. But I I don't do that every day, but I'll have a practice and say, okay, I'm going to do this for the month of August. And then I move from there to developing, editing, and I'm constantly editing. I'll edit poems I wrote 15 years ago. I just yeah, think, really? Why do you revisit something from 15 years ago to edit it again? How do I what? Why why do you revisit something from 15 years ago to edit it again? I just love playing with the language. I just look at it and think I could have said that in a um more suggestive way and a more um adept way. And and I liked the idea and I think I can polish this idea. You know, I love that. At some point, but it's after I finish my novel and get it on the road. <laughs> You're like, one thing at a time. I want to put together a full book of poetry. But as I say, I don't know how I'm going to organize it because I have. Have Ted do it. <laughs> okay. That's a good point. Just put them on the floor and let Ted do it. I love that. Well, I and, love that. and Jennifer Ann Gordon says, so you have something else that she's requesting you do. She says, I would love to hear Adele and Tom. And I know Jen has read this as well as an audio book with Chella reading it. So now you've got another plan on your, on your thing, because I think your voice, I, I don't just mean your accent because you're from Santa Barbara for the last how many years, but you still did not sound like you're from Santa Barbara. No, I don't. You know, thankfully you do not sound like a California girl like this one here. Um, but I, I love the voice and the fact that you're talking about the language because I, I know people talk about different things like panthers or plotters, fiction or nonfiction, these different kind of false dichotomies we put ourselves into as authors. And right. I honestly feel like one of the biggest ones that people don't talk about is people who are story driven and people who are language driven. And the reason I say that is there are books I've read that 
they are very crisp and they're easy to read, but there's nothing that makes you want to hang on a sentence and just revisit it. When you get right. done with the story, it's amazing. It may have hit you in the heart and you love it, but the language itself isn't something you want to sit and savor. This book is just one you would absolutely want to sit and savor because of the language. So it doesn't, it doesn't honestly surprise me that you're going back and polishing these things because I can see that already in this and in the other poems that you've posted, because for people who are not already following Chella, it's, it's scrolling along at the bottom of your screen, but she's she's on Twitter and on Facebook, and you will often post and share these poems. So right. they aren't necessarily available just in a literary place, but you can find them online, and she, she shares them. So I get to have little bits of you whenever you share them, which I love. Um, but I can see that in the way that you really hang on the language. And I know Jennifer is the same way, someone who is more, I don't want to do the whole literary versus commercial distinction, but it's almost the someone who loves the language as much as what is being said by the language. And I, right. I think that's something that's definitely you. You know, and you have to be careful. And, and you you and Jennifer just are fabulous novelists and are so much experience, more experienced than I in that area. But one hand, when you're really kind of honed in on the language, you have to be careful to keep the balance and not if you want to have a novel that people read. <laughs> Exactly. And not have the language take too much superiority. You need a balance between the language and the narrative. And that's and a hard balance. Because I'm finding this sound, of course, because <laughs> I'm writing a longer narrative. That uh, I want to keep that story moving and I want to, at the same time, I'm very concerned about the language. Exactly. Oh, and Jennifer. It's been kind of... I mean, I have been around a lot, a lot of poets, and I love poetry. But I think because poetry is not read in the way that that novels are, um, that poets, and I think this is true from, you know, from Homer on. Well, Homer was more narrative, but certainly the romantics like Shelley and Keats, particularly Shelley, was out there waving the banner for, you know, poetry is the, the language of the legislators and it's the language of the spirit. And it has this kind of superior position. Well, I've always thought that was kind of bull hockey or <laughs> malarkey, as our president would say. Because, you know, think about somebody like Toni Morrison. Mm. Oh, my God, she's just poetry and novel. And I can imagine, you know, I, I just think it's it's weird the way, and I think poets do it because they aren't read to the extent that novel novels are. And to tell you the truth, I've always wanted to write a novel, but I've had difficulty staying with that extended narrative. I can get that. Well, and, and Jennifer says poetry for me is meant to be read aloud, but Jennifer also comes from a dramatic background. So right. everything for her is meant to be read aloud because it is always actually a script as far as she's concerned. So that's, that's her own point of view. And I, I completely understand that because poetry for me, I, I often do read it out loud. And for me, a lot of times there's even music, um, 
I can't right. compose for the life of me. But most of my stuff, if I've written poetry, which is rare and it's not very good, it always has a cadence and it's more like stanzas to me, to a song than it is just plain poetry. And I'm sure that some other people approach it that way. But I was, I've never been taught poetry properly. So I'm usually just dabbling and flailing around with it. Right. Um, but what you said as far as giving that longer narrative that people want to stay with, that's that's exactly right, that, that that balance has to be there, that we can't fall down that that well or go chase that rabbit hole where we're just loving the language so much that we forget what we were trying to say yeah. with it. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, yeah, we have that, to... I guess that comes in the, the revision, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, it comes in the revision. But, you know, I love rap. I love spoken word. I love... Uh, just all of this oral is because it's been a revival of poetry, I think, in the last 20 years. All of the, uh, you know, the, the spoken word. Well, I think it's beautiful. And Laura says, I love listening to people read poetry, as do I. And I think that there is this kind of false elevation of the novelist over the poet probably because of the commercial success that is usually tied with what, how much does a general book of poetry sell versus a best-selling novel. Right, right. And, and I think that's a shame because I remember it was probably about a year ago. I was sitting doing my, I'm trying to write in public, which means I don't get distracted by everything else around me and just focus. And there was a young man sitting next to me and I could tell he was writing and he could tell I was writing. And eventually he's like, excuse me, but are you writing a novel? And I, I said, well, yes, yes, I am. And he explained that he was a poet and his friends kept asking him, when are you going to write a novel? And I asked him, I said, do you want to write a novel? And he said, well, I don't know, but it seemed like it was the natural thing that being a poet wasn't sufficient as it was. And I told him, I said, unless you have a novel in you that you really want to do, right. stick with what you like doing. If you love doing poetry, do the poetry. We don't need someone right. who's doing a novel just because his friend told him to. And I didn't want to be discouraging. I felt like I'm probably, I should be on team writer. Go write that novel. Everyone has a book in them. But maybe the book that this guy has in him is a beautiful book of poetry. Maybe that's, yeah. he's supposed to write screenplays. I've, I've read and run into people who are being pushed into boxes because someone else says, this is the way to make money off of what you're doing right. instead of right. this is what you're actually really gifted at or where your passion is. So, I, I highly doubt that that young man is listening to me now, but I didn't mean to be discouraging. I mostly wanted him to be following what he wanted to do and not look down on what he was doing, but it was clear his friends thought of poetry as like a lesser than. Right. Right. It's, well, you get the different, you know, you just, we have these genre conflicts. Why do I have this yeah. genre tension? You're right. Just right from the heart, whatever you're moved to do. Whether it's to stay with one genre, play in all genres. Um, well, and I know we joke sometimes on Vox Vomitus that the goal is to be the end cap author where you don't stay in a genre and the booksellers give up and just have to give you your own end cap because you don't quite fit anywhere. Right. Um, which, which would be awesome. Um, Jill Hall says, as a novelist, there's nothing more scary to me than writing a quality short story or poem, different skills entirely, and much respect all around. Joe, completely agree. And I think it's good to dabble in other things as a skill builder. But well, I personally, like, I, I was talking to another author this morning, and she was talking about literary journals and pay rates and things like that. And I said, much respect. I don't write good short stories. That's what I started out doing when I was younger, and I won awards for that. 
it's not my strength. It's not where I'm, I'm able to really find my voice in that kind of place. And I think there's nothing wrong with saying there are some people who are good at it and some people who aren't, and it doesn't make you less of a writer. It's just everyone has their different skills. Totally. You know, when I start, when I was working on this novel and the not my tentative title is Janet Hall, I figure Anna Karenina, um, Olive Schreiber, what was that? Olive Kittredge, you know, any number of novels with one name works. But anyway, I was telling the story in third person with flashback. And I was trying to incorporate a strong, independent narrator. I just kept struggling with this. And I thought, this is not my style. This is not not my voice. So I just moved it to first person. You're like, this is how it needs to go. So I'm telling you from Janet's point of view. I love it. Oh, and I just, then things started popping. Well, and it is funny because I'm I'm in a book club that I have some very strongly opinionated readers in there who are like, I won't read third person or I don't do this tense. And it's so funny because there are those things that certain readers are just going to be automatic, eh, not going to read it. And there's not much you can do about it. But I know that for me, when I sit down and start writing, the voice almost naturally comes and trying to change the tense or the POV is really difficult because it's just, that's how the story is coming out. So I totally applaud that. You're like, no, it needs to be first person that you recognize that, 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 that story needed to come that way, that that story, right. needed to be Janet's story, not third person limited or, uh, I won't even get into second person, which is lovely for choose your own adventure, but otherwise makes me go cross. Right. Yeah. You just have to go. As you were saying, you have mm-hmm. like the young guy writing poetry. If he's not inclined to write a novel, stay with the poetry, follow your heart, follow your gut. Where are you supposed and one to one may bubble out of him. I mean, I'm not saying that won't be something he comes from, but it was very clear that it was an outside imposition telling him what he should do versus this is where my passion is. Or because he wasn't he wasn't asking me, oh, how do I get started? Or I wanted to write a novel. It was more of someone thinks this is what I should be doing with my time and what what my poetry here is is insufficient. And that right. that to me was the the part that I'm like, no, that's not what I want to hear. Also, I'm trying to work. <laughs> which, which is fine. When I write in public, I expect to be bothered by people, and that's fine. And when I go out and I am writing with my friends, we are like, yes, we are here to keep each other accountable. And sometimes my friends even remember to bring their laptops. I'm not calling out anyone in specific, but they know who they are. But that's one of those things where if you're there and you're in public, people are like, what are you doing? And they they want to know and they want to see. And right. I guess if they see you writing a novel, they figure you know what you're doing. No, I don't usually know what I'm doing. I just do it anyway. I'm excited to read Janet Hall, even if that title changes, because I loved reading Adele and Tom so much. And I loved getting to read all your different poems. And I'm I'm excited to see a Chella Corrington full narrative, full chapters, not not two paragraph chapters. Although you can still do that if you want. I'm excited to see how that's going. Not only are you an excellent writer, you are an excellent reader. I think you pick up occupational the, hazard. Yeah, you, you're quick. You pick up the nuances. You and you go right to the heart. I mean, I'm just so glad you read my work. I oh, well, thank you. I promise, Cello is not being compensated to to do this. Other than she she sent me she sent me a book, so I'm I guess I'm getting paid 
by way of a new signed copy of this, which I was excited to get and see this. And oh, I also you mentioned that I used your blurb. I noticed. I'm like, I'm quoted on the back of here, but I know. Um, I, I also wanted to point out I had not heard of Impspired, which I swear is not a typo because every time I say it, I have to like jump over it because there's a little imp here. So you can probably not see that very well. Impspired has been the one to put this out. Can you tell me a little bit about them and how you found them? Because when you and I first connected, it was through a different publishing experience, which we don't need to dive into, but it wasn't through Impspired. And I was very glad to see that Impspired is now the one touting your well, book. And I'm like Number yeah. one, I I... I saw that a writer I was familiar with had been published there. And I was reading through their credits of authors they'd published. Inspired is also a literary journal that, in England that, that seems to have a good reputation. And I noticed that they would reprint a book. So if, you know, Adele and Tom had a previous publisher, many publishing companies would not take it because I'm sure it had been previously published, but Empspire did take republished books. Um, and so I inquired about the publisher, Steve Cauty, C-A-W-T-E, and got good reports from him and submitted my manuscript. And, oh, Allison, he was wonderful. And I love hearing that. And our working through the original manuscript, he would do the layout and then he would send it to me. And he said, no matter how many um, drafts we go through, I want it to be to your perfection. I love that. That kind of and, attention to detail and that he's concerned with you being happy with it. Yeah. I, I love hearing that because I will say uh, Chella and I first connected with a prior publisher. It was not the best experience. We won't go further into that. Well, we connected. But, that was a great experience. And, and you know what? The people that I connected with through that are gold. And I'm so glad that that's what happened through it because we all come away from different experiences, sometimes with connections, sometimes with learning lessons. Uh, but I'm really glad that this book has new legs because I know that it wasn't getting the kind of attention or even just support that you would have you that this book deserved and that you would have wanted for any book. Right. So I'm really glad to see this. Not just the beautiful new cover, because I liked the old cover, but this one is very it I just it just kind of captures it with the hands intertwined in the fairy lights. I, right. I, I, almost, I almost tried to do a picture with that, but I was like, I will get caught in my fairy lights if I do that. I should not mess with I'm not good with electric stuff. I will break things. But I love that you were doing that. So you were you were looking at probably seeking agency to have the next book come out because of going through that while you're still in the editing process. Because you, are you done with the the first draft? Are you revising? I'm done for. I'm on about the third third draft. I read a draft, uh, make corrections. I hand it to Ted. He reads mine and if he has suggestions he makes suggestions hands it back to me then I move on to the next draft so I'm about on my third or fourth nice. draft. well I'm I'm personally excited to get to read it but I also know that there are going to be agents out there who are going to be dying to have you as a client and well, be able to read this and go Jenna I'm excited about that well you've been that route you've gone yep. that route yep right now it's I'm terrifying <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, um, just selecting who, where are you going to send it and mm -hmm. 
who's appropriate for your work and you know what are the possibilities here and I have a couple of agents in mind that have dealt with southern writers, southern novels and and those are having a revival. I feel like we've read a lot of southern noir and I know I don't I wouldn't necessarily say yours falls into noir. I don't know enough about the plot yet to know that, but that's a, a section there. And I remember we had someone on Vox Vomitus not that long ago who literally found the person who was going to represent her because they were looking for this specific geographic region that I'm like, I, I didn't realize there were yeah. agents who were looking for such a small section of part of the United States. Cause I come from a place where no one is interested. No one wants to care about orange County, California. We're not that interesting. We don't have the culture. We have, we have Disneyland. We're not, we're not exciting, but there are people out there who it's like that part is what they want to tap into. So finding that, finding that like love connection you, is, is a you thing. You write a political book <laughs> now about Disney world and have some creepy, crazy nut whom I will not mention by name is trying undermine Disney World, get on with that. Well, that's Florida. I don't know enough about Florida. I, I stay far away from there because they have alligators there and alligators terrify me. They're cool, but they terrify me. I'll stay over here in, in the other Orange County, the, the California one where they have like teen teen dramas that were on 15, 20 years ago. The OC. Oh, but, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And the Real Housewives, which I also stay oh, very yeah. far away from. But but again, it's it's a slow process and it's one of those things where you need people to cheer you on and I'm, I'm happy to be in your camp and to be cheering you on as you go. I mean, I, I wish that I would have had a, an English professor like you when I was in college. Uh, most of mine were not all that interested in doing much and one of mine just basically sent me out uh, before the class was over and said, there's nothing else I can do to help you, which I thought was on one hand, I was glad to get out of class. But on the other hand, I just thought, really, there's, there's nothing else you can do here for me. All right. It was funny. Neglecting the responsibilities. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a writing class and I, I happened to go to a college that was not focused on it was more of a science and math college. And somehow as a poli-sci major, I just ended up there. And it was one of those things where they realized their science and math kids didn't have the writing skills. So this was a writing class and everybody was going through draft after draft after draft. And like the last four weeks of class, they're like, yours is fine. Just stop coming. And I'm just going, all right, guess I'm, guess I'm done. Oh, God. It, it was weird. I'll tell you that. Oh, and Linda wants to know. Can you say that publisher? Oh, yeah, Linda. It's actually, it's impspired. So think of like a little mischievous imp, I-M-P, and then it's spired, like inspired. So I'll, pay, I'll put it in the comments here to make sure yeah, people yeah. can see it. I found it on the internet. Yeah, you had to do a sec, uh, double take, sort of. Did, it, did I make a mistake? Was this inspired? No, no it's inspired. <laughs> and it I love that, that little person. You can see the little take on it. Yeah, it's cute. I, and I thank love you, writer. Linda. Linda's a fabulous writer too. We've, I've read a lot of her short pieces. You ought to put a little publicity in for your blog. She does a Linda. Put your blog in the blog comments. about <laughs> advice to writers. Ooh, well, we all definitely need that. I mean, there's there's always advice needed, and from different points in people's careers and in their goals. Because I know I was talking to a friend this morning about, well, what does success look like? And some of us are like paying bills. That's great. 
But her answer I loved. She said, I want to be read in a hundred years. And I'm just thinking, I'm not thinking a hundred years from now. I'm thinking bills now, but a hundred years from now to think someone would still be reading your work. Will yeah. this be around a hundred years? I would, I would hope so. So well, then, I, I just want somebody to read my, I'm like you, I want somebody to read my work now. <laughs> that would be nice. You know? I'm not going to be here in a hundred years, so I'm not really worried. But it's, you know, you just want you want your you want readers. Yeah, and you want and you want to know that your work is resonating with people because yeah. the idea of you writing just for yourself. Because I've had people say, "Well, would it matter if no one read what you did?" I'm like, "Well, then it could just stay in my head, couldn't it? Like, why bother oh, getting it out oh. if no one else is going to see it?" I mean, writing there, you know, we do have those stories of Emily Dickinson and all the diarist. And, but generally you want to share, you want someone else to hear, to validate. To, oh, the validate. Yes. It's, it's just such a connection writing, I think, with the world. That's so true. Chella, thank you so much for joining me today. Don't run off after we're done because I want to catch up with you a little I bit. This has been lovely, Allison. I'm so glad you could join me. And thank you, everybody who's been watching live. Thank you, everyone who's watching on the replay. If you're on YouTube, please make sure you like and subscribe to the Vox Vomitus channel. Helps us be found. And next month, I will have Kritika Rao come on with The Surviving Sky. I'm very excited to do that. We're jumping back into full-on fantasy speculative fiction, which is definitely... There's there's no speculative here. This is all very grounded. So we're going from but very grounded to not grounded. It'll be, it'll be amazing. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great one, and we'll see you next time. Bye.